deepens how we treat one another as children of God. So verse 10 begins this. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountain and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. How encouraging is that, that Jesus calls us his little ones, and he would never let any one of us fall away, for we are his children. But because of that, he goes on to say, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loosed on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. This is Jesus' word particularly to his children now on how we are to relate to one another as children of God. Simple, simple commandment on reconciliation. Of course, most things in Scripture really aren't that complicated. They're just very hard. But they're not difficult. They're just hard. And this is the hard part of really learning how uh, to love one another because the phrase was, if your brother sins against you. That is, a brother-sister kind of language is assuming this whole thing that Jesus has been teaching about the family of God, that we are children of God. And if children, uh, then we are to relate to one another as brothers and sisters, uh, that we're not going anywhere uh, when we offend one another or um, really actually just deeply sin against one another. See, Jesus gives this command to deal with sin. Sin. And I don't know if I could preach this every Sunday and then myself and you included We'll have to hear it again. Sin is a really big deal. Like, when we get worried about germs and diseases and cancer and all the other injuries and harms and pathologies that can come to our life, it's nothing. It's nothing compared to sin. See, sin is dealt with, in my understanding, in almost a medical fashion right here that it would be isolated and excised from the community of believers. And it's much more dangerous than any other disease you can think of. Jesus just went on to tell his disciples, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eyes cause you to sin, gouge them out. 
The idea of saving, saving the patient, right? There's a medical procedure that seems harmful, but in the end, it's actually better. Well, that was all just to point to actual sin, the danger of sin. And so here Jesus is giving a very detailed command that we must, and, and we must as a church, New Life Church, have this understanding deeply within our souls if we are to maintain the peace and purity as a church. See, his particular thing has to do with sin, which of course is any lawless thing, anything that is want of conformity to the law of God, any motion of the mind or action of the hands that is contrary to the very nature of God. Because God has made us kind of like his nature. We are made in his image. Therefore, if we sin, that is, go contrary to God's nature, by direct consequence, we harm ourselves because we were made after the nature of God. So if we sin, that is a micro version or a soft version, a gradual version of suicide. Sin is suicide. We were made in the image of God in perfect righteousness and holiness. Anything that we do contrary to God's nature, that is sin. And it just so happens to be that's contrary to our nature. That we are destroying ourselves if we sin. And so Jesus being our Savior happens to be very focused on sin because him saving us and our sin are so, so closely connected because our sin is our own self-destruction, our own suicide, even though we oftentimes do not make that connection at all. But it is our death. So in the church, particularly, as Jesus is creating a covenant community of redeemed and restored people, it must have an immune system. It must have an ability to deal with this sin. Or it would be just like every other institution under the sun, corrupted with sin and no means to get rid of it. See, it's more serious, of course, when there's sin out there in the world. That's one thing. But when sin comes into the church, when sin enters into the church, that is particularly dangerous, particularly uniquely dangerous to have sin within. Everywhere in Scripture, the church is spoken of as being like a body. We all are different body parts. Some of you are eyes. Some of you are feet. Some of you are brains. Some of you are, I don't know. Maybe you should know what body part you are. But we all are body parts to a great body. If sin enters into the body and it doesn't have a way of remedying that, that's called death, disease. AIDS, an immune system that cannot work. What Jesus is giving us here is a particular way to expel sin out of our camp. We don't see it, but it's very, very dangerous. There's a particular passage, and this is just something that popped in my mind here, and I know we don't have a lot of time with Jeff's installment, but you have to think of this. Achan, in the book of Joshua, he sinned. He had sin in his family and his camp, it says in the scriptures. And because of that, they lost their war and battle with the Canaanites. And then Joshua said, well, why did we lose? We were able to do so many great things and miracles, and God's power was with us and among us. And now we can't do anything. We can't even take away a few hundred soldiers. And God simply said, there is sin in the camp, was his words. There is sin in the camp. You see, if we don't know how to rid ourselves of sin, 
we will become at best a dysfunctional, useless, saltless, lightless church that's just getting by. We need to be able to move this out of us so that we can call down power from heaven and pray for a revival and reformation in our age as every generation, every faithful Christian generation would always want, beginning, of course, with our own hearts and then moving outward into the world, but barely having enough power to even manage their own sin in our own lives. How could that ever be the case? How could it ever be the Great Commission to be fulfilled? The danger of this is all laid out in the way Jesus addresses sin. He says it this way, particularly, his word is, if your brother sins against you, go directly to him and tell him his fault. That is, he's your brother. That is, we are a church that is the family of God. Therefore, go to him and appeal to him as a brother. Now, of course, the difficult thing is, and I've observed uh, uh, human behavior. I don't know if you noticed this, but people don't like admitting when they're wrong. Well, I know you do, but there's other people. Uh, believe me, they're out there. Like, there's other people out there that really don't like it when you tell them that they did something wrong, especially if it's moral. Like, it's like it's one thing. It's like if you, 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 mis, you miscalculated a math problem, you're like, oh, silly me. But if you morally did something wrong, and it's actually a pretty serious thing, and it's actually pretty evidently wrong, whew, people don't like that. But that's the whole point. That's the very center of the problem. It has to be addressed at a very small level before it grows into a large cancer. So Jesus has given us a particular scalpel, you would say. A particular way to excise uh, this uh, malady from our communion, from us as a church. That we would be healthy and sound in the whole body with all its body parts working together in unity. That the nervous system is connected to the joint system and the muscle system. And we are accomplishing things as a church. But if we entertain sin in any way... We're compromised. We're not sound. We're hating one another and gossiping about one another and harming one another. The danger of all this, of course, is the offense. If you are offended, there's a danger for you. And if you have offended, you are in danger. Very serious danger. Now, we know sin is so common in our life that we would think, yes, I sinned against them. Ha <laughs> ha. And what's for lunch? That's not how it is with the Lord. If you have sinned one time, and you know about it. And you put your heels in the ground about it. And I mean a sin that is there for all to see. And you don't have a heart of contrition or repentance for it. Your eternal life is called into question. You are on the edges of hell itself. We'll see how Jesus explains why this is so important. That sin must be dealt with. That it must be purged from us. He speaks of it first personally, locally, and corporately. Personally, he says, go privately. Locally, bring a few. And then corporately, the whole church. If someone were to be uh, cut in the arm, that's local. It's a, it's a small wound. It's bleeding. You bandage it, you deal with it, it's done. If it was a particular dirty cut, it could be infected, and you can have a local inflammation that runs up your arm to your elbow. If it was a particularly bad cut, I mean, that this, this particular disease was on, 
the knife or the object that broke open your skin, sin that got within your system, your body, and it's not dealt with, well, then that's a systemic affection. You can go into sepsis and the whole body die and be corrupted. That is, a church can collapse. A church can close its doors. A church could be labeled dead. We must have an immune system. We must have an ability to cleanse the little scrapes and cuts that occur between us, or we will become infected and we will die. And you see these stages from a little cut to a localized infection to a whole sepsis. As Jesus says, go personally, then locally, then bring the whole church. It's a very similar thing in the way God made his very presence on earth, which is the church now, in his temple. For there was first a very tight, little, holy place, and then a less clean, holy place. There was a holy of holies in his temple. Then there was a holy place. And then outside there was a place of dust and bronze, no gold and silver. And it was called the outer court. But outside of all this, you are outside of God's house. You are outside of the temple. You are outside of God's presence. After you get past that third stage, that third tier of holiness. There's something going on here in the way we should deal with sin in our lives. For if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Let it be between you and him alone. Privately. Individually. Personally. At every moment, always among us, keeping sins secret. Let them be secret. They are shameful things. Let every sin that's ever come to you, and every sin you've ever done, how you would want to be treated, let it never be heard by anybody, as far as it must go. He says, let it be alone. And particularly, he says, go and tell him. The word there for tell him is not simply just, I'd like to send you an email that there's a piece of information you should know. You sinned against me. It's, it's a reasoning type of word. It's a word of confrontation. It is, um, some say, uh, speak to him frankly. Or speak to him plainly. Let him know exactly, you have offended me, and this is the reason it is true sin because of X, Y, Z. Bring your Bible, open it up, and have the Bible proof text in a very charitable way saying, the Lord says, you should not step on my toes. And you did. That was bad. And make them feel it. right? Not in an arrogant or harmful way. It's for the good of their soul. Tell him. Confront the person. There's the double danger. And it has to be this way. This is more serious than COVID. The double danger of it all is that it can be an absolute moral corruption to your soul when you've been sinned against. Jesus just warned about the little ones that stumble and fall away. You can be sinned against and enter into deep, dark valleys of bitterness and unforgiveness in which you will fall away from Christ. But the danger is also similar to the other direction. That if the person who has sinned against you has truly sinned against you and is therefore not receiving the word of God to them and is obstinate, that's a danger to their soul to say, perhaps they are not even in the kingdom. High stakes on both ends of this confrontation. It is a word particularly for retrieval. 
for reclaiming the person. If he listens to you, he says particularly this, you have gained your brother. See, the word for gaining your brother, that is, you, you actually, um, it's, a, it's a money word, it's a financial term, that you actually have brought him back into the account. You have uh, increased a friend. You've not lost a friend. You've gained back a friend. A friend that could have been lost, you've gained him back. And this is a tremendous increase, an upgrade in your friendship account or in the community of the church or the peace of the church or the unity of the church, the glory of God in the church. You've gained that back. Let the world see that there is a reconciliating power within the people of God. If you can do that, rejoice. You've gained your brother back. That's the purpose. The purpose of it all is to reclaim them. It was right before this that Jesus said, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and he just loses only one of them, will he not leave the 99 on the mountain and go and just get that one? And he says, there will be greater rejoicing over the one who was lost than the 99 who were already gained. This is not just a personal offense. This is between being inside and outside of the kingdom. Being inside and outside of the sheepfold of Christ. Surely, if we are left to our own, in the wilderness we fall away. Sheep are killed by wolves or taken by robbers and un Undealt with sins are oftentimes the catalyst that bring people to fall away from Christ. In the church, it is our particular purpose to care for one another. James says this, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, and let him know that whenever you bring a sinner back from wandering, you have saved his soul from death. Do you realize what Jesus is saying? If you approach a brother or sister on their sin and they actually can repent and turn from it, yet again, they have been saved from death. But we, the reason for the church, we are accountable to one another, to hold one another accountable to this gospel, to pull one another back into the fold, to not go into the wilderness of the world, to not go into our own devices and our own assumptions and our own vain ideas and deceptions that we need to humble ourselves to one another every day to show evidences that we are actually having humble hearts that are humbled before Christ this is all so important but if it fails that is if the if the cut is infected and if the inflammation extends Jesus second step of course is to consider a locality that is that we are responsible for one another, so that he says, if he does not listen to you, take one or two others along with you also. Particularly from a passage in Deuteronomy which says, let every charge be established by two or three witnesses. We all have different optics. We all interpret things differently. Did they really sin against you? Were you just personally offended? Do you have a bitter and jealous heart that's just not being generous with them and you're making mild things, mountains? Well, that's the point of the church. Other perspectives. Other people who also have the Spirit of God, who also have the Word of God, 
come alongside the situation and say, it's evident this person is in grave sin. Two or three more saying that, now the problem is only exponentially more serious. It is only a cause for greater fear and concern and worry and humility and contrition. That not only one, but now other people within the church are saying, you must repent of this. This is a terrible sin that you have to be rid of. It is death you are holding in your lap. It's private again. Two or three, not 50 and 40, 60 and 70 people. See, discreet. It's not gossip. It's not slander. It's not defaming the person. Just a few on the situation. If it doesn't work, Jesus' final remedy is this. Now, if he refuses, if this man is hard-hearted and refuses to listen, tell it to the church. And if he refuses, and here's the warning, to even listen to the church, let him be to you a tax collector. Let him be to you a Gentile. Let him be to you as an unbeliever. Someone who does not have life in Christ. The church simply just means assembly, congregation, this thing. It would be the case that if someone particularly from the church would be in usually the way these things go, a situation of adultery, that is a public sin that you can't avoid talking about. You can't really hide that one. That it would be obligatory for us as a church, myself pastorally in the session particularly, to announce it to the congregation. Because without it being brought to the light, as Ephesians says, it ruins everything about us. Because in the back of everyone's mind is, everyone knows this person's in a public gross sin of recalcitrant, contumacious is the word, unrepentant sin. And everything that I get up here and preach, and everything we say, well, pastor doesn't really mean that. Because you obviously could go do whatever you want and he won't say a thing. You obviously could go live contrary to Christ and this church would really just keep going because it's all platitude and hypocrisy. That's the danger of actually losing the gospel. It must be removed and Jesus' final step is publicly. That is, a public ecclesia, church, assembly in which we say, this person, particularly, has still not repented of this particular overt sin. You should love them. They should be here, hearing the gospel every day. But we do not consider them right now at this moment to be a brother or sister in Christ unless they return to Christ. So that the gospel is pure. So that the ministry is pure. So that the body has an immune system to keep itself from its many besetting sins. And so Jesus says particularly, bring it to the church, bring it to a public knowledge for the sake of what? Deformation, condemnation? No, reclamation, bringing the brother back from his fault so that they do not go to hell. It is always and at every point motivated by love. Love is the whole thing behind. So Jesus mentions the authority behind this, though to the world it looks like nothing more than just a little bit of Amish ostracization. 
Jesus is saying, the very authority of heaven is behind this. Whatever you bind on earth, that is, whatever decision you make over this matter, as far as it accords the word of God and the spirit, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, or has been bound in heaven, or shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loosed on this earth shall have been loosed in heaven. That is, your decision as a church over a matter like this is definitively prophesying or proleptically looking forward to that brother or sister's death. That they only met a small judgment seat here at a particular congregation. But that if that judgment here in any particular congregation holds a man on his sin that he is unrepentant, he must fear because the Lord Jesus Christ by his own word said, when you come to my judgment throne, you will get the same condemnation. That's the fear of it all. Jesus is standing by that judgment to say, if they bound you here, you will be bound up there. If your sins have not been remitted here, you should understand as a warning to you by the church that you must repent because I will not let one sin go. As God introduced himself on Mount Sinai, he will by no means clear the guilty. And to us, it just looks like normal life. To us, it's just a marriage problem. To us, it's just that annoying person that is always saying mean things to us. Behind it is the warnings of God's eternal judgment over a proud heart that will not repent of sin. And this is all for grace so that we might learn to truly forgive one another as Christ has forgiven us. The danger is twofold. After this service, I walked through the hall and someone stepped on my toe. Oh, my little pinky toe. And I said, ow, that hurt. And I went to them and said, hey, you stepped on my toe. And they said, I know and I don't care. There's a danger. Forgiveness needs to be transacted. If I go to someone and say, you stepped on my toe, they don't care, they don't repent, now I'm in trouble. What do I do with it? Do I hold bitterness in my heart? I have no way of getting rid of it. If you think of forgiveness only as being objective out there, you need to forgive each other. But what, here's the reality. What if the person is not ready to repent or actually take on forgiveness? What do you do with that bitterness? The danger, of course, is that it's a danger for you. But if you think forgiveness is just between your ears, if you think forgiveness is just a warm feeling in your heart, well, then everyone offends you and all you say is, I'll just forgive, I'll just forget and let it go. Yes, but that's also an equal danger. Because there are people who are committing great sins and no one's confronting them about it. And that's not a love to their soul. That's not a love to prepare them for the judgment seat of Christ. Do you see how Jesus' wisdom in all this? To get us out of ourselves. And at every point, the church is always conflicting us with our individualism. 
that we cannot just deal with individual sins. We have to go to two or three. Then we have to go to the whole church because Jesus is trying to remove sin from everyone's heart inside his church. So if I go down the hall and someone steps on my toe and I say particularly, oh, I'll just forgive them. I won't even tell them about it. I'll just, I'll just put it away. That's fine. There's a good place for that. But what if you keep thinking about it? What if you can't, you can't stop thinking about that guy that steps on your toe? Well, here's the deal. If you don't do what Jesus says, that is, you don't go directly to them privately, two or three, then the church, pretty soon everyone in the church is wearing steel toe boots. And this guy's going around jumping on everybody's toes. And the system is not working. The body is not getting rid of the sin, the offense. And I don't want to wear steel toe shoes. They're uncomfortable. David Paulison says it this way. He's a Christian counselor. There's two aspects to forgiveness. Forgiveness is, one, attitudinal, and two, transactional. That is, you have to have an attitude of forgiveness, and you have to move toward actually transacting forgiveness. It's a real thing you do, like going to the PNC counter to get your debit card. See, transactional forgiveness relies on a response. Luke 17, Jesus says, If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. That is, he has to repent for he to receive any real forgiveness. That's great. But what if they don't repent? What do I do with the bitterness and anger I have in my heart? Well, that's where we have another thing called attitudinal forgiveness. That is, you can forgive particularly from your heart to the one true God. We're told to do this particularly in Mark 11. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven may forgive you of your trespasses. That is, when you stand there praying, and Joe Toe-Stepper isn't present with you, you don't have to talk to him right now. You can still forgive him through this prayer. Give an attitude of forgiveness through your prayer. Prepare your mind for action through prayer that you would say, Lord, I forgive Joe. Lord, work on his heart. It's not just an emotional thing. You've just prayed that. It's a transcendental thing. Transcendent. There's real power to that. But if you bind on earth, to be bound in heaven. We are the temple of God. God's spirit is here among us. We must pray for an attitude. Why is this so important to Jesus? Concluding it all to say this. Our life depends on this very thing. That we would have an attitude of forgiveness with everybody. And that we would push, we would press, we would purge at every point to find sin in our lives and make it awkward. Make it awkward. Go to them personally, face to face and say, I need to deal with this with you. It is good for your soul and my soul and Christ's church and his glory. The attitude Jesus Christ has saved you by that very thing. If you ever need help, if you ever need motivation to have a heart of love to everyone that ever wronged you. And this is the thing. People think, well, forgiveness is so transactional and so out there, and they're not willing to forgive me. Then I'll be fine just harboring passive-aggressive hatred in my heart for the rest of my life. That's not the goal. 
Jesus is on that cross. There is a mountain that was not moved from his life. In Luke 23, it is called the place of the skull, Golgotha. It says, and there they crucified him. And as he was hanging there crucified, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. But it doesn't make any sense, because how could they be forgiven? As they pound the nails in his hand. There's no repentance, of course. If there were any repentance, they would have taken him down on the cross eventually. So how are they possibly forgiven? Because he is not forgiving them saying, I forgive you for crucifying me. He said, Father, forgive them for crucifying me. It's triangular. It's a prayer. It's a transcendent attitude of forgiveness that eventually resulted in 3,000 being converted at Pentecost in which the transaction of forgiveness followed. That he prayed, Father, forgive them. And then in 50 days later, the Holy Spirit fell on these men and they said, brothers, what must we do? We are cut to the heart and we have crucified the Lord of glory. And Peter said, repent of your sins, each one of you, and you'll all be saved. That is how we deal with sin in this church. If no one will ever ask for forgiveness, you pray God's fire upon them. To soften them, to burn them for their own good now. So they might live forever. Do you realize when he prayed that prayer... It was all our record of debt, Colossians says, that pounded on that tree. That that prayer has been answered for you now as you have come to Jesus Christ. Because before, he prayed that you would be forgiven. So Father God, we ask that you would give us a heart to forgive. Lord, we pray that you would keep us as a holy church. Lord, we our church full of sinners. But none of us can be in the church and be unrepentant sinners. Father, we have sinned and committed great problems against other people. But none of us can even match to what we have done to you on that cross. Father, we ask that you would forgive us of our sins and give us grace to forgive those who have sinned against us. Lord, we pray particularly for your power in this age, that you would pour out your spirit for revival and reformation, that we would be a holy temple to show people a place that there is the presence of the holy God among sinners who are now saints. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.